0: So we're looking at this passage, Romans 3 today, verse 1, 8, under the title, "Arguing with God. I've probably shared this before, but I remember being at a funeral a number of years ago in Newry, and a great old man of God in his 80s, I met there called Jimmy, and I says, Jimmy, how are you doing? He says, I'm fighting with the Lord. I says, Jimmy, why are you fighting with the Lord? Oh, he says, I want to go home, and the Lord won't take me home. And uh, that probably was a good fight to have with the Lord. And told Jimmy. well, you know yourself. The Lord probably must have something still for you to do. Paul was very aware that the Jews who would be listening to his teaching would kick back on what he was saying. And in kicking back, though, against what Paul would be saying here, they needed to realize they weren't just arguing against the man. They were arguing against the apostle of Jesus Christ. They were arguing against God. A number of years ago, when I was maybe about late teens or early 20s, my minister in my home church was preaching on John 11, the story of the death of Lazarus, and preaching on the subject of death. And my father was walking down the path of another gentleman, and the other gentleman was furious. He said, I'm really upset with what I heard this morning because he was saying, if I'm not saved, I'm not going to go to heaven. Now, he'd been saying that for many years, the minister had. The father just turned and said, well, if you have a problem with it, you need to take it up with God above because he's just saying what the good book says. Now, Paul in chapter 2 has shown that there are three things which the Jews relied heavily on and which they valued, which they thought would get them right with God. But it didn't work in getting them right with God. The first thing was their morality. And Paul is saying there's no use use moral Jews and any other moral people pointing your finger at the pagan Gentiles who were very involved in immorality because you are guilty as well. Now maybe your moral sin is more discreet and maybe it's more in your heart but it is still there. We're all guilty before God. And then the second thing they relied on keeping the law and Paul spoke of how it wasn't enough just to hear the law you had to be a person who obeyed the law and he made that shocking statement that indeed there are Gentiles who have never heard the law who are probably keeping the law more than some of yous who have had it. And then the third thing was their circumcision. The Jews, Jewish men were very proud of this. It was an outward sign of being a Jew, but it was also a sign of the cutting away of sin. And Paul taught how circumcision done on the body was not as important as a circumcision done in the heart. This outward sign needed to be accompanied with this cutting away of sin within a person. And Paul, in response to his teaching, he knows how Jewish listeners would react because he would have been like that at a time before his conversion. Remember, before his conversion, Paul was Saul the Pharisee. And so what we have here today in this chapter three, in the first verses, is basically a debate between Paul and a religious Jew. And in many ways, it's probably the Paul after conversion, talking with Paul the Pharisee before conversion. He knew exactly what these Jews would be thinking. Now, what we have today in this passage are three arguments that the Jews would raise against Paul's teaching, what he has taught in chapter 2 about how morality, the law, and circumcision didn't make them right with God. The first argument they throw up in verse 1 to 2 is about God's favour to his people. In verse 1, then, what advantage has a Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Now the argument is basically this, if our morality if keeping the law or our circumcision did not make us right with God, then what value is there, Paul, in being a Jew at all? In a sense, they're saying, Paul, your argument that we're not right with God, it doesn't hold water because we are God's special people. How can we be God's special people And when it comes to judgment, be no better off than those Gentiles. Paul, we can't be those bad sinners that you're making us out to be. We cannot be people facing the judgment of God. Because we are his special, loved, and chosen people. So that's basically the argument that Paul is faced with. Now, Paul, of course, he stands by his declaration of their guilt before God, that all are guilty before God, but that does not mean that they were not still a a privileged and special people. Look what he says in verse 2 about their, their value of being a Jew. He says, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And it appears here, Paul is about to launch into a whole list of the privileges that these people had at being a Jew. But when he mentions the first one, being entrusted with the oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures, he doesn't get any further. That is basically enough. He's saying that having the word of God as the people of Israel was a tremendous privilege. One which no other nation had at that time. And he wants these Jews to see that, okay, I'm saying you're not right with God, but you were so privileged that you grew up to be taught the word of God. Now, when Paul speaks here of the privileges that these Jews had, in many ways, those who are Presbyterians and brought up within the church are people brought up in another church in this country. We have those privileges as well. And maybe you're here today and maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're still not right with God. But you've had this amazing privilege of being taught God's word, maybe in your home, in the church, in organizations. You've had a Bible in your home that you could open and read. You need to realize there are many people today in this world who have never seen a Bible, who have never had the privilege of hearing God's word taught. And having the Bible is such a wonderful thing because it is God's word it is God speaking and Paul says it is able to make you wise for salvation Peter says people are born again through this word and through the preaching of this word people are brought to saving faith in Jesus what a wonderful privilege to have access to the word of God now Brookside we're far from being the perfect church But one thing you can be guaranteed of in this church, there's other things as well, but one thing you can be guaranteed of in Brookside, in our services, in our meetings during the week, in our organizations, God's word is faithfully taught and preached. Never perfectly, but faithfully taught and preached. And let me just say this to our young people. I hope you understand the amazing privilege you have of being part of this church. In Sunday school, in Bible class, in youth fellowship, at youth club, at Girls Brigade, at Boys' Brigade, at our services, you have these wonderful opportunities of hearing the teaching of God's word. You've been brought up with this word. There's so many that in your class at school, so many in this country who have never had this. Don't take this for granted. And you be faithful at the different meetings and the organizations and the services that you can be at. Be at them faithfully. And go with an attitude to learn, to listen. Take notes. Let God's word go deep within your heart. Sometimes people complain, you know, you have Sunday school and Bible class on Sunday morning. You have the morning service. You have the evening service. You have youth fellowship. That's four different teaching things. Young people, how many classes do you have in school? Nine periods, mostly? You've got four on a Sunday. The Word of God. I remember when I was at college, at times we were taught things which were not true and faithful to God's Word. And I knew that these things were not true. And I knew what the truth was. And to be honest, many of these things, I can't remember being taught many of these things. But years of sitting under faithful Sunday school teachers, youth fellowship leaders, ministers, it had sunk in. What a privilege. What a privilege. So there we have God's favour to his people, having the Word of God. And then the second argument is God's faithfulness to. His promises in verses 3 to 4. The argument coming back from the Jews is, what if some were unfaithful, some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now the argument here is basically, okay, some of God's people are unfaithful. But even if God's people are unfaithful, surely God will not be unfaithful to them. Surely if God is unfaithful to his people, Israel, if God's unfaithful to the Jews, that goes against the very nature of God, which includes faithfulness. So how could God be faithful and ever reject us Jews, even though, yes, we've been unfaithful? How could God be faithful and reject us? That's basically the argument here. Paul is so clever. Verse four, by no means... That God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now Paul is very clever. He is quoting here from Psalm 51, which we sang earlier. That famous Psalm of David, after he had been confronted by the prophet Nathan, because of his adultery with Bathsheba, and because he had her husband Uriah killed deliberately in the battlefield. That's what David is quoting here in verse 4, or Paul is. Now let me just read a wee bit more of Psalm 51 to you to get the full context of what Paul is quoting here. It's on the screen. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That was David after Nathan had confronted him and he accepted his guilt. And the point that Paul is making in quoting Psalm 51 is that God's faithfulness is shown in judgment as well as in mercy. That's what Paul has basically said here. When God judges people for their sin, he is being faithful to his just nature. He's being faithful to the promises that he has made about bringing judgment on those who sin. For the Jews to argue, how can, judge, how can God judge them and remain faithful to his promises they're being very selective in regards the promises of God that they remember because God does give them promises to bless them but he also made promises to judge them you see a wee picture coming up of two mountains Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal when the children of Israel were going into the promised land the commandments of God were read from those two mountains. From Mount Gerizim were read all the promises of God's blessings if they kept God's law and trusted in the Lord. From Mount Ebal were read all the promises of God's cursing if they turned away from God and sinned. But what were the Jews doing? They just wanted the good promises. We need to be careful not to be selective in our hearing and remembering of God's word. We can't just remember the bits of the Bible and accept the bits of the Bible that are nice about God blessing. If we just accept those bits, that can be fatal in regards to understanding what God thinks, understanding where we are with God, and understanding what God is like. Years ago, when I worked in a Christian bookshop, they sold these wee boxes called blessings boxes. Wee boxes with rolled up wee Bible verses in the box. The idea, you would put, go every day, you have this in your house, you pull out a wee, wee scroll, and you read a nice Bible verse to encourage you. Uh, the person who owned the shop, he called it the, the Lucky Dip. Uh, that's what he called it. And that blessing boxes are it called, yeah. You know, he didn't sell in that shop boxes of curses. If he got a whole pile of the promises of Bible about God judging sin and condemning sin and put them in wee scrolls and skid them to people to be, as, to be sold these block boxes of cursing, he wouldn't do so well. But do you know that whether you're not saved, or whether you are a Christian, we need both. Yes, there are times we're discouraged. We need those promises of God's blessing. And God makes those wonderful promises. But we also need those promises of God's judgment. We need both if we're going to be on the straight and narrow. We need to listen to what God says about how he'll love and forgive us and be with us. We also need to remember what he says, how he'll judge us and condemn us if we turn away. The Jews were just wanting God to be faithful to his promises to bless. Paul says, listen, he's also promised to judge. And then this brings us to our third point, which is God's furnace in judgment in verses 5 to 8. The arguments that Paul has been responding to in this passage, they get more twisted as they go on. And Paul actually gets quite apologetic. You look at the end of verse 5. He says, at the end of verse 5, he says, I speak in a human way. He's basically saying, please forgive me for even repeating this. Because, but he has to do this because these are the arguments that people would give to him. When we argue with God, we need to be careful because raising genuine concerns with God out of a heart of faith and reverence is one thing. But to constantly go on raising questions as an excuse not to obey and not to believe is something very different and very wrong. Question from an attitude of faith, reverence and obedience. Don't question out of a desire, not to believe, not to respect, and not to obey. The Reverend Douglas MacMillan, you see we picture come up. He was a minister in the Free Church of Scotland. He was a minister in Aberdeen and then in Glasgow. And then he went to lecture in the Free Church of Scotland College. He died, I think, before the age of 60. But a story is told of how he is speaking to a young person about coming to faith. And this young person has so many questions. Now, Douglas Macmillan was a very bright man. And he answered those questions over a period of time. And one evening, Douglas Macmillan was leaving the young man home. And the young man says, I have one more question. To which Douglas Macmillan replied, No more questions. Take your questions with you to hell. You can imagine the young man was a bit shocked. Douglas Macmillan went home one o'clock in the morning his door was knocked he went out and there was a young man not with questions but he was broken and he came without any more questions to saving faith in Jesus Christ you know We can all make excuses. And maybe you have been making excuses for years. Why not? You don't be a Christian. And God will say to you, be careful. Because you'll end up taking your excuses. You'll end up taking your questions with you all the way to hell. Be careful. Now let's look at this final objection. Verse 5. It says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. So the argument is basically, the more unrighteous we are, the more righteous God then appears And so, if we're unrighteous in how we behave, we're doing God a good turn. We're making God look much better. So, why will God then judge us for making him look more righteous in our unrighteousness? Now, this is a very twisted argument, and it fails to see the great seriousness and horror with which God looks upon sin. Sin took Jesus, God's beloved Son, to die on the cross and suffer horrendous pain. Sin is never something that God can take lightly. And we should never take it lightly. The point, though, that our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, as it's being said here, it accepts one important point. It accepts that God is righteous. It says, if our unrighteousness brings out God's (laughs) unrighteousness, They are accepting that God is righteous. And that is why God has to judge the world. It goes on in verse 6. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? And Paul is saying it is because God is righteous, because he is just, that is why he has to judge the world. He can't just ignore sin. He has to punish every sin that's ever been committed. And it will be punished either on Jesus on the cross for those who are saved, or will be punished in hell forever. Now this very twisted argument, let my unrighteousness go unpunished because it makes God look good, it is then presented in a slightly different angle in verses 7 to 8. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slandishly charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This again, it fails to see the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God. And God can never delight in sin. He can never delight in something that is wicked and is so opposed to his nature, even if somehow he's glorified by it. But behind that final verse... Let us do evil that good may come. There's an accusation that was being leveled against Paul and his preaching about salvation by grace. Paul, by teaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone and not by keeping the law, it meant that Paul was accused of basically saying, you can be saved and therefore live whatever way you please. They're basically saying, sure, Paul, you accept this. You can say, if you trust in Jesus, you're saved and you can do whatever you want. Sin and sin all the more, because then God's grace is revealed more and more and more. That's what Paul was being accused of preaching. That's very similar to a common Roman Catholic objection to the doctrine of justification through faith alone. And this is from good-thinking Roman Catholic priests at the time. Their fear is that if you say you're saved through faith alone, what's to stop people from going on in a life of sin after they're saved? But what such thinking fails to grasp, and what Paul's objectors fail to grasp, is that while salvation is through faith alone, it's not by our works, it's trusting in what Jesus has done alone on the cross, It's through faith alone but it is with a faith that is never alone. In other words, it is a faith that is also accompanied by rebirth, being born again. It's faith that's accompanied with the Holy Spirit changing a person in their heart, in their lives. It's a faith that then causes people to have a totally new outlook in life and to live a new life for God's glory. So we're we know we're saved by trusting in Jesus alone. Christ alone, my hope, is found. But when you come to trust in Jesus, if you generally come and trust in Jesus, something else is happening. The Spirit of God is changing you and moving you into a life of obedience. And this life of obedience is not to earn salvation. This life of obedience is is with thanksgiving as a result of the wonderful salvation that Christ has brought to us. You see, we always need to remember God's abhorrence at sin. God is never going to save people from their sin and then leave people in that sin. Now, in this world, the Christian is not perfect yet. But in this world, the Christian has a new life. He has a new direction. His new direction is away from sin and towards a life of obedience with Christ. A new creation, their God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for a new life of obedience to please the Lord. Has this happened to you? Is the faith that you have a faith in which you cling hold of Christ as your only hope, but it's a faith that's led you into a new life in a relationship with Christ and a life of obedience to Christ. Saved through faith alone, but it's a faith that is never alone. So as we conclude, let me quickly recap the arguments God's favor to his people. Paul said, listen, you've had the privilege of God's word which should lead you to salvation unto Jesus. God's faithfulness to his promise. But remember, these promises include judgment. God will be true to himself. And God's fairness in judgment. God always does what is right. But he wants to save you, to take you away from judgment to a new life of obedience in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And again, Father, that's so challenging, but Father, it's so needed. And Father, we are reminded again and again in this passage that you never take sin lightly. You're a holy God. You're holier and purer than we can ever imagine. Moses discovered that. Paul discovered that. May we be aware of that. And may we be aware that Jesus is our only hope and we have to trust in him alone for salvation, grasping hold of what he's done on the cross, grasping Jesus to be ours. But Father, help us also to remember it has to lead into a new life. We cannot love Jesus. And love the sin that takes him to the cross. May we hate sin. May we become more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.